Hello and welcome to the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's very, very exciting tech and startup sector. And in this podcast, every week we talk about the top articles that have been published on our site and we chat to our journalists who've been out and about in Europe seeing what's going on. This week on the podcast, we're going to be looking at some of the big fundraisers going on in Europe. So even though people are talking about venture funding slowing down, valuations coming down a little bit, there have still been some really big and pretty exciting raises in the past week or so. We've covered a bunch of those, so we'll be talking about those. Then we're going to be talking to our fintech reporter, Amy O'Brien, about a rare interview with the CEO of German neobank N26 about some of the challenges, we can say, that the company has been facing recently. Those include culture challenges and then also some challenges around compliance and specifically anti-money laundering compliance. And finally, we have a special guest, AI specialist investor Nathan Benesh, who's joining us to talk about why Europe's universities aren't creating as many tech companies as their U.S. counterparts and why the system for these so-called spin-outs is broken in Europe. And Eleanor, you've been hanging out with a bunch of VCs this week, haven't you? What have you been up to? I am at Superventure in Berlin, which is like the VC conference of all VC conferences in Europe. And yeah, I've been up to my ears in VCs for the past 48 hours. And what's what's the vibe at Superventure? Are people wearing capes? Oh my gosh, I wish people were wearing capes. But actually, it's really funny. I went in and came directly from the airport, took a look at the attire of everyone sitting in the hotel lobby and immediately went to the bathroom and changed into business casual from the like kind of startup vibe clothing that I was wearing before. <laughs> this is definitely a conference where people are wearing button down shirts and jackets, interestingly enough. What else? I feel like I've met tons and tons of climate funds and food tech funds, a lot of emerging managers, and a lot of those people have been saying, oh, you know, even though tech is kind of in a downturn right now, climate is super important, people are still going to want to invest in this. Um, So that's been something interesting I've also been hearing at the conference. And do they feel like climate tech is going to be pretty resilient at the moment? Or do we think we'll see VCs and LPs, the people who invest in VCs, backing away from climate tech at this time? Well, I don't know. People probably wouldn't give me an honest answer, even if it was going to be the case that people were going to be backing away. But for example, I did talk to one big climate tech fund yesterday who's in the middle of fundraising. And they said that they had actually brought on a bunch of LPs who hadn't really invested in VC before, but were specifically attracted to the climate tech thesis. So I think that we will see you know, continued interest in the sector. Like everyone knows that our planet is screwed and that we need to invest in technologies and solutions to saving our planet and our future. So that's mostly the answer that people have been giving me. Long live climate tech. Okay, so let's crack on and get into the news that we've written about this week. Not saving the planet, but saving lives. There was a company called Proximy, which is pretty cool. It uses augmented reality to help surgeons perform tricky operations. So what that means basically is that a surgeon in one place, in one country or in one hospital who has to perform a difficult operation somewhere in the world can get another specialist surgeon to watch that surgery happen live. And then the specialist can use their hands with this AR technology to show the other surgeon what they need to do. So it's a way of kind of 
sourcing this intel from great surgeons who are necessary in the physical location that you're at. And it raised an $80 million Series C round from investors, including our old friend SoftBank. Why did this catch our eye, Eleanor? Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting just from the point of view of digitizing health, right? This isn't like telemedicine. This is actually more about like the training of surgeons and being able to share skills across geographies, like borderless, right? Which is really interesting. You know, everyone talks all about how the medical sector is like 10 years behind in digitization compared to a sector like finance, where we've seen tons and tons of innovation and huge companies be built. And then I think there's also the SoftBank angle, which is really interesting. So last year, SoftBank was super active in Europe. I mean, who wasn't active in Europe last year. And according to Dealroom, they did 16 rounds last year. And this is only their third round in Europe this year. So, you know, definitely have slowed their investment pace in Europe. So, you know, if they're doing this deal, that is a signal that this is a great company. Those were the kind of the things that stood out to me on this. So obviously we saw heaps of telemedicine apps get loads of traction during the pandemic and proximity saw the same thing happen. So its use increased by 430% in 2020. But Proximy, unlike some telemedicine tools, has continued to grow. That's especially relevant because during the pandemic, lots of kind of training time was lost. And according to the founder of Proximy, a woman called Dr. Nadine Hashash-Haram, one million surgical training hours were lost during the pandemic. So Proximy can play a really important role in kind of getting the next gen of surgeons up to speed. So who else has been raising this week, Amy? So this one is pretty cool. This one is a company that's developing enzymes that can eat plastic waste. Pretty great. So it's called Epoch Biodesign. And they raised $11 million and they came straight out of stealth. And I actually met the founder, Jacob Nathan, who's the co-founder and CEO, at a dinner. And I did the usual thing where you're like, give us your exclusive when it comes out. And he did. What? touched me about this story and it's there are few funding stories that touch me on an emotional level this was one of those rare ones and touched me because jacob is just 21 co-founder and ceo and at school he got interested in the fact i don't know if interested is the word but he got tuned into the fact that our planet is planet is screwed and specifically interested in how plastic waste is a problem and wrote a paper about how enzymes could be used to break down hard to recycle plastics, but he needed someone to help him take his idea to fruition. And so he got in touch with Douglas Kell, a professor of systems biology, who was 48 years his senior, and they have founded Epoch Biodesign together. Amazing. And how, how exactly are these enzymes getting used, Eleanor? So they're using these enzymes to basically gobble up some plastics that are currently unrecyclable. I feel like they're like little Pokemons. That's what I thought of when I read this article. So they eat things like multi-laminate packaging, flexible films, and some plastics that are used in agriculture and manufacturing. And it's part of the kind of wider interest we're seeing from sort of quote unquote normal VCs in synthetic biology or synbio as its friends refer to it. And McKinsey, 
uh, have estimated that there are 400 use cases of synthetic biology which are all based on redesigning organisms so that they can then be brewed to create useful things so that's everything from new materials to energy and health applications and one that we've spoken about before in the pod is cultivated meat we spoke about bioreactors before and this kind of precision fermentation where you take yeast proteins or other things you redesign them and you brew them up and you can create these products that are similar to in this instance cows milk but also other alt milks um, and VCs and scientists think that kind of the possibilities are endless in Synbio for great new companies. Yeah I actually really think that you know in Europe we have tons of software companies like consumer tech unicorns right now but I think if you think about like the next five to ten years in Europe and what the technology landscape a VC-backed technology landscape is going to look like I think we're going to see a ton of unicorns in this synthetic bio new materials space so these are definitely going to be companies that people need to pay attention to. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about EPOC biodesign was once these friendly little enzymes gobble up the plastics, the outputs of those processes can actually be used to create new materials. So there's actually like this whole other stage afterwards. So you could create cleaning products, you could create fertilizers. So you could have a company that gives its plastic waste to EPOC biodesign, uses those enzymes, and then they could actually make another product from the things that are produced. So exciting times for SynBio. Very exciting. And then the final story that we wanted to talk about briefly was some data that one of our reporters, Kai Nicole Schwartz, who you've heard on the pod before, got hold of from the UK jobs platform Otter. So Otter kind of can tell us what's going on in the hiring market. And the top line is the number of roles that UK startups are hiring for has dropped significantly in the past three months. So there are actually 20% fewer new job listings posted on the site and live roles are down by 13%. So this is kind of a further sign that startups are beginning to batten down the hatches as this economic downturn starts to bite. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that we reported on this data this week because it's a very strong counterpoint to some of the hype I've seen around London Tech Week. It's a little bit more measured of an approach what's going on in the market right now and if we get into the specifics it's actually the the very smallest startups so the ones that have under 21 employees and the very biggest ones so the scale-ups that have over a thousand employees that um, have seen the biggest drops in hiring they've posted both of those categories have posted 33 percent fewer new jobs in the past six weeks and then when it comes to sectors it seems that sustainability fintech and cybersecurity are the most resilient right now they they haven't decreased the number of jobs that they've been posting as much as some other sectors um, like big data and education they're down over a third in terms of the jobs that they're listing so i guess kind of looking back at a lot of the news that we covered this week we still see you've got High-performing companies able to raise big rounds on the level with what we saw maybe in 2020 or 2021. But then there is still this uncertainty around tech companies and hiring. Now we're on to our first interview of the day. And we're joined by fintech reporter Amy O'Brien, who got an interview last week with the CEO of German neobank N26, Valentin Stauf. N26 are one of Europe's highest profile companies. They're competing with 
neobanks like Monzo and Revolut to become the bank of choice of the future. Amy, can you tell us a little bit about who Valentin is? And it seems like he doesn't really like talking to the press. So why was he talking to you? Valentin, he's been an interesting one for Sifted to reach out to uh, for interviews. My colleague Miriam has done um, some really great reporting on the ground in Berlin about their struggles with culture and retention. But he has never said yes to an interview in response to Sifted's reporting or provided any comment. So at the Money 2020 conference in Amsterdam, I got the opportunity to interview him on stage, which was great because I got to ask him all those questions we've been dying to ask for a while. So N26 has faced some controversies around company culture and turnover. What did you ask him about that and what did he have to say? Yeah, so he was actually quite open and did address the turnover. I came to him with the specific numbers that Miriam had worked out from people at N26 in 2020 and 2021. The churn rate had reached around 40%, which is really high, even for high growth startups. The average is around 25%. So I came to him with these numbers and he didn't confirm them. And he said that they had reduced. And so I asked why. And he said that they've taken some steps to improve employee retention. The only step he did actually mention, though, was that they'd improved their employee stock option plan. They did this at their last raise, which is their Series E in October, and they made it available to all staff rather than the 70% that it was available to before. So employee retention and turnover hasn't been their only struggle. I know they've also had some stuff to deal with around regulatory and compliance issues. Tell me a little bit more about that and what Valentin had to say. Yeah, so this is really what I'd say N26's blind spot is, and and this is a big focus of the interview. They've had issues on both the anti-money laundering side of compliance, but also know your customer. So these are the two sort of pillars, uh, the biggest struggles for neobanks. On the anti-money laundering side, they've been in trouble with the German regulator BaFin last year and also the Italian regulators who said that their anti-money laundering systems are just not up to par. And so they've been banned from onboarding new customers in Italy. And yeah, the German regulators are really not on their side. Valentin admitted that it has been a struggle. But the interesting thing on the anti-money laundering side was that he didn't really say that N26 systems were lagging or subpar. Instead, he just said that N26 should have educated the regulator um, before they did and got talking with the regulator earlier. So that was quite interesting. On the know your customer side of things, N26's main thing that they've been in the news about recently is unnecessary account closures for customers. So this happens when they sort of overshoot on the compliance side of things and they think that normal accounts are actually suspicious and they close them down with sort of no warning. The most recent case of this was in April, 100 um, customers who were just ordinary N26 customers had their accounts uh, wrongly closed and apparently some are still struggling to have them reopened. And on this, Valentin did admit that they need to improve their KYC systems He did say that everybody had had their accounts reopened, so there's a bit of controversy over whether whether that's the case or not. But he did admit that this is a struggle and that they're working on it. 
And for our final story today, we've got a very special guest. We're joined by Nathan Benaish, the founder of Air Street Capital, which is a micro VC firm investing in AI startups. And this week, thanks to some data and research that Nathan and Air Street compiled, we ran a story about some of the issues with translating cutting edge uni research into private companies. So, The headline is basically Europe is apparently much, much worse than the US at turning science and research into startups. Nathan, what is going on and and why why have you looked into this? Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm really excited to discuss the topic. Yeah, I've been looking into this because before I went to the venture business, I actually did a PhD in cancer research and computational biology in the UK and I was educated undergrad in the US. And so I've always been really interested in how to take you know new inventions and form products around them. I think it's just become increasingly popular over the years to want to form a company instead of publishing papers. And so this topic of trying to make that translational process really efficient is even more topical than what it was before. And one of the key things we tried to do with this research is to try and add transparency to what are the deal terms that surround the formation of new companies from from inventions in universities. And Nathan, what exactly is the problem in Europe? Versus the United yeah. States. So I think in, in short, uh, in Europe, we have this endemic culture of short-termism. And this is short-termism over optimizing for the long term. Uh, and so to kind of unpack that, you know, what does it mean? The first point, I think, is that we're just overly concerned with, quote-unquote, fair value capture at the outset, rather than optimizing for you know, what is the best for the long-term success of a spin-out. So it, it seems like, you know, based on the data you've compiled, that European universities and specifically UK universities are taking a much bigger slice of the equity pie than US universities. What does that mean how, and how should we interpret that? So on average, across the data set, we saw that UK universities take 20% mean equity at the start versus in the US, 6% and in the EU, 7%. So in comparing it, it's, you know, UK takes about 2.7 times more equity than the EU on average and more than three times on average versus the US. And this accounts for deals where uh, companies give away 0% equity. So if we actually remove those 0% equity deals, then the UK takes 24%, the EU takes 14%, and then the US takes 9%. But it's not only about the equity, it's also about control. On the governance side, what we saw is that in the UK, it's much more likely that companies acquire a board director from the tech transfer office or even have external leadership installed to run the company. So taking the governance plus the high equity rates, what results is that you know, if a European spin-out has to offer you know, 10 to 20% equity to a university from the outset, and then say it raises you know one to three million dollars as a seed round for say twenty percent, and then it has an option pool of about ten percent for its employees. Then essentially the founders of the company have call it fifty to sixty percent of the business. And if there's two to three founders, after they've raised an additional Series A and taken you know another round of twenty percent dilution, it's very likely that each one of those founders individually owns less than their Series A investor. And so what happens is then founders have essentially become de facto employees of their own company. They don't feel like owners. And then you just get this negative feedback cycle of founders not wanting to push very, very far because they don't own enough of their company and they just get diluted too, too much. And then you just end up with small outcomes, which then doesn't set good role models for other founders. And so I think it's just a, a downward spiral that it's just a net negative for the whole ecosystem. 
And for someone who maybe doesn't understand how this whole tech transfer process works, can you kind of talk us through like how that works? How does research that someone's doing in a university turn into a company? What's the process there? The basic process is if we take a, a PhD student who has, you know, in the UK, maybe three years to you know, just do some research, write a paper, um, write a thesis and defend it to earn their degree. In the course of that research, they might discover something like a new protein that is responsible for a disease. And then over the life of that PhD student's work, it becomes clearer and clearer that this protein might actually be a therapeutically interesting target. So we could build you know, a drug company around targeting this protein. What then happens is that the student typically has to make a disclosure of this invention in order to file intellectual property that protects the idea. And to do that, the student then has to look at their sources of funding and their relationship with the university to understand contractually who has rights over what. When they make the disclosure, they go to the transfer office, who then basically audits the idea and tries to stress test it a little bit to figure out, is it worth you know, me as an organization spending some of my resources to protect this idea, or is it not novel and you know, uh, I decide to pass? Then like the process would then be protracted usually over like several months. And in the data and spin out FYI that we released, we saw that the average time to spin out is nine months. So this is the time from, you know, somebody making a disclosure to then being able to walk out from the tech transfer office with a company, with a license and kind of being ready to raise some money and make a, an announcement and sifted. There's all sorts of things that can happen to make this a lot, a lot more protracted, but that's the, that's the general, the general gist. And Nathan, what in the data surprised you the most about the state of spinouts? What was like the, was there anything that you were like, oh my gosh, wow. So one of the findings that surprised me and, and stunned me the most was the result of a net promoter score survey, which tries to assess how happy founders are with their experience spinning out a company. This is used regularly to measure how happy customers are with a software product, for example. Usually you'd expect the number to be you know, double digits and pretty high and positive. Uh, in the case of spinouts, it was negative 56, which one could argue is like the worst NPS score of almost any product. It, it aligns basically with banks, which like, consumers don't trust banks anymore. <laughs> and, like Apple is something like 50 or 60 positive. And which EVs were the worst? There's some pretty glaringly like bad examples. I can read you some quotes to sort of add some color to this. So there's a student from Loughborough University who said that generally I found the spin-out process to be opaque, frustrating, and that a TTO, the technology transfer, has not been supportive or enthusiastic. We have found ourselves being treated as quote-unquote naughty kids, which just shows you this this kind of adversarial mentality of like in entrepreneurship, it's it's good to you know push the boundaries within reason, of course, and like that's what I think a lot of great companies exhibit. But here, it's like if you start doing that, that's not according to the norm. Um, there's another quote from University of Oxford where somebody said that TTO doesn't trust academic founders; they don't believe that they can do the job, and I think this is part of the problem. And then the last quote I'll read out, which is interesting, which relates to the time that it takes. Uh, to actually make the spin out. And this is from UCL where somebody said, the most painful part of the process was how long it took. The angels wouldn't invest until we'd finalize the spin out process, which is to say that you actually have this licensing agreement in place. And that took nine months. It paralyzes us. What can we do to improve the situation? What's the light at the end of the tunnel, Nathan? <laughs> well, I, I think the silver lining is it doesn't seem very hard to me to fix this. Uh, so number one is, you know, giving founders more information, like what we're doing with spin-out FYI, is step one. Like there should be a glass door for spin-outs. It doesn't make sense that you should enter a negotiation not knowing what to expect. 
So that gives founders the ability to negotiate better. Then I think canvassing for this kind of transparency makes policymakers aware of the issues that founders face and that actually this is connected to a pretty dire long-term economic output, which for Europe is you know lack of funding, lack of big companies, lack of great academics who would rather move elsewhere if they could. So then it creates pressure on you know universities and TTOs to basically modernize and hopefully like legislate around this and make it a national priority. Which in the UK, for example, universities are government funded, and so the government doesn't actually have a lot of leverage. So ultimately, what I would what I like to see is that we adopt standards because the reality is today like we don't have that many massive spinouts. Like in Europe, I think we have four out of 126 according to you know research last year. So it's not like we can get any worse. So I think we should be. Like running more experiments. Thank you very much, Nathan. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. So thank you to all our special guests today. And if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all our coverage on sifted.eu. You can also find all of the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. And if you want to read more great stuff by Sifted, you can follow our main newsletter or many of our, we have tons of other specialist newsletters as well on the website, or you can follow us at SiftedEU on Twitter. And if you want to really fill your boots with Sifted content, then please pre-register for the top event of the year. It is the Sifted Summit, which will be happening in London on the 5th and 6th of October. It's going to be a two-day in-person extravaganza of workshops and roundtables and live pod recordings, not just from us, but from other tech podcasts as well. And it will be really focused on helping founders and investors and startup employees get through the slightly tough times that we find ourselves in with lots of practical advice from people who've maybe been there before or a bit further ahead of the game than you so please check out the website it is summit.sifted.eu and you can find out lots more information there we'll be announcing lots of brilliant speakers in the weeks to come and we really 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 hope to see you there bye bye